so let's talk a little bit about Buddhism. Buddhism is also uh, something that we, we, we do encounter even in our own city. There, there are Buddhists that live here. About 6% of the world population claims Buddhism as their faith. So that would be quite a few millions of people. A little bit about the history of it. You were talking about the 6th to 5th centuries uh, BC, 653 to 483, Siddhartha Gautama lived. And he was actually born as a Hindu. And there's three stages of his life that we need to understand. So his history affected his beliefs. His history affects, affected the kind of new religion that he started. And it's kind of interesting to think, you know, this guy basically lived 2,500 years ago, and we still have statues of him in some of our gardens and boutiques and so forth, even in our own city. So he has had an influence of some sort. So three stages of his life. Basically, he started, started out his life as a very privileged, sheltered boy. Everything was great. He was like the equivalent of a kid that had Xbox. He had GameCube. Uh, he had the Wii, the older and the newer version. You know, he had the iPod. Like, he had everything, okay, that he, he wanted. And up to the age of 29, he commonly called his life the age of enjoyment. So he's born in the Hindu warrior caste in northeast India. His father doesn't want him to see suffering. So he successfully shelters his son from everything that takes place in the world and keeps him in their compound. So he, he, he never sees suffering of, of really any sort, any substance. He's unaware of absolute poverty, of blindness, of he never saw a crippled person in his life, okay? But one day he ventures out and he wrote later that he saw four kinds of suffering. He saw crippling old age for the first time, sickness for the first time, death, and extreme poverty linked with asceticism, which an, an ascetic basically is a person that dedicates their, like a monk that would live in a desert or the guy with the hand in the air. People who commit themselves to ex take vows of uh, poverty and live in extreme poverty on purpose. So he sees these four things and he's shocked. And he, he comes back and he starts to think about the issue of suffering. It causes him great concern. So then for the next six years or so, he enters into a period called inquiry. So he leaves his family, he leaves his wife, he leaves his son, he leaves his luxurious life, and he lives as an extreme aesthetic. Now because of that, he suffers. He suffers from extreme malnourishment, which you wouldn't think if you look at the statue. And uh, he concludes that asceticism is not, or did not, address the source of suffering. So probably where he got this from is he, he met aesthetic people and uh, maybe respected them in some way, shape, or form for what they'd done. So he tries it out to see if that's going to overcome suffering. So that puts him to the ripe old age of 35. And after that, from 35 till 80, is his period of enlightenment. So the story goes that he was sitting under a fig or Bodhi tree 
in the city of Bodh Gaya, and he vows to stay under that tree until he finds enlightenment. During this time, he said that he was tempted by Mara, the wicked she-devil. He stayed for an unknown period of days, and in that process, however long that was, he became the Buddha. So the Buddha means literally the enlightened one. So he, found, he finally found enlightenment. Or the, I guess, the, the answer to what life is all about. He died at the age of 80 of food poisoning. Otherwise, he might have you know, uh, lived a little bit longer. So he doesn't die of natural causes. He dies of food poisoning. Now, he comes into Hinduism. He goes through these three peri periods of his life. And he starts to teach from 35 to 80. He starts to teach people in his community, former Hindus, and they're, they're converted. So he calls, uh, fundamentally he calls his teaching the, the middle way. Uh, this is also known as his enlightenment. So he, he teaches his students that it's about balance in a sense. You want to avoid the two extremes. You want to avoid the extremes of affluence, like he was raised in, and you want to avoid the other extreme of asceticism. He first, he first preached, he preached his first sermon on the Four Noble Truths. Uh, and we're, we'll look at those at the bottom of page 31. At Benares, he won thousands of followers. Very quickly, he got a, a lot of disciples around him. And out of that, he formed communities known as Sanghas. He said that to be enlightened involves forsaking all, since all is illusion. So that's kind of a, a remnant of the other Eastern religions, notably Hinduism, that uh, you need to sort of forsake the concept of all, because all is not real. There's something beyond that that one needs to encounter or experience in this realm of enlightenment. He also said that desire is an illusion, which is kind of an interesting uh, idea, even philosophically, that desire is not actually real. One can hold it philosophically. It's very difficult to understand that practically, I think, because I'm not sure how you ever rid yourself from desire, but I guess in some ways he claimed to do that. So pantheistic monism. So once again, what is pantheism? Someone tell us what pantheism means and what does monism mean? What's pantheism? It'll all pan out in the end, no? What's pantheism? Read. Okay, all is God. What's monism? Oneism, which means there's no distinction between creator and created. All that there is is in fact one. So out of Buddhism, then, there's been different forms that have arisen over the years. And we'll introduce ourselves to three. Theravada Buddhism, there's roughly 127 million plus adherents. And in this form of Buddhism, the, the first two, by the way, are the most uh, common. Uh, Maya Yana Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism. They, they compose the, the, the bulk of Buddhists in the world. Enlightenment is accessible only to a committed few, so not everybody can access this. An arahat is one who is more concerned about his own enlightenment than others. 
they see Buddha as an enlightened man, that there's only one Buddha, that enlightenment by, uh, one can attain enlightenment by own efforts only. There's a sub-branch of this called Cha'an Buddhism. This was introduced in the 6th century AD. And they introduced a technique for meditating, meditation emphasizing the vast emptiness within oneself. Later, this form of Buddhism took root in Japan and morphed into what's now known as Zen Buddhism, which is more, uh, revolves more around systematic doctrine or the systematization, the organization of truths, and disavows formal logic. And there's some countries there where this Theravada Buddhism then is, is prominent. And then there's uh, Mahayana Buddhism. There's 187 million adherents. So this is by far the largest kind of Buddhism. They say that enlightenment is accessible by all. So that's the key difference. The first group says it's only available to some. The second says it's available to all. That's probably why they have more adherents, because it sounds better. The Bodhisattva is one who has attained enlightenment but refuses nirvana in order to return to help others. So you've heard of the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama is considered a 14th rebirth, rebirth of this individual with a very complicated name. And the Bodhisattva of compassion. They see Buddha as a manifestation of the source. There are many manifestations of Buddha essence. Others can help you attain enlightenment. So... The idea here is, is that there's some people that are enlightened, but they willfully choose to come back over and over and over again to help the rest of us find enlightenment, and that apparently is the Dalai Lama. And we all know that that's very uh, popular then in Tibet, right? Then there's a sub-branch called Pure Land Buddhism. It teaches that one enters a pure land for a time before becoming one with nirvana. So nirvana then is, is the ultimate sort of goal. And that's what makes it very much like Hinduism. Nirvana is sort of ultimate reality that one goes back into, and the self disappears into the whole. It's like I said, if you, if you had a big cup of water and maybe a spoonful of water, the spoonful of water is temporarily separated from the big cup of water. The ultimate goal is to be dumped back in so you can't notice the difference. It just all mingles and it's part of one. That's like what nirvana is like. So it's the dissolution of self back into the cosmic one. And that is popular in China as well as Tibet, uh, Hong Kong, Japan, Taiwan, Vietnam. And then there's a smaller group, Vairayana or Tantra Buddhism, and they have adopted a lot of occult techniques drawn from Hinduism. And this is prominent in Tibet, Bhutan, and Mongolia. Okay? Uh, I do remember, I don't know if they were Tantra Buddhists or not, but I remember when I was in China, there was some Tibetans that had come down into Beijing. And when you're walking through underpasses or kind of back streets, they would have blankets laid out, and they would be dressed as Buddhists. And they would be selling all kinds of animal parts, like really weird stuff. And uh, I asked my translator what that was for, and they, they, he told me they were Buddhists that would use that for different occultic practices. I don't, I don't know if it was for mixing potions or, or what it was for, but it was some pretty crazy-looking um, items there. There was a, this dried worm that they said if you plant it, it turns into a plant. 
but then you can pick it or something and dry it back out and it turns into a worm. I don't, I don't know what, what that was all about. But the point is there's three main kinds and two of them are represented by the vast majority of people who claim to be Buddhists. Now, we want to try to understand a little bit more about the belief systems of Buddhists. So there's many different versions, of course. Generally speaking, generally speaking, all Buddhists affirm the following beliefs. I'm sure there's some that don't, just like I suppose there could be some people that claim they're Christian, but don't believe in Jesus or something like that. So the vast majority of Buddhists, though, would believe in these following things. So we call these the four, or they call them the four noble truths. Truth number one, life consists of suffering. That's a reality. Truth number two, which flows out of that, is the cause. Why do we have suffering in our world? Christians have tried to answer this question. Muslims have tried to answer this question. Hindus have tried to answer this question. And Buddhists have tried to answer this question. So they say everything is impermanent, so not permanent. And we suffer because we desire that which is impermanent. Now, from a certain angle, that almost sounds a little Christian. That if you're tied to the world, if you follow the pleasures and desires of this world, that you can get yourself in trouble. But in actual fact, it's quite a bit different because biblical Christianity is not opposed to pleasure. Biblical Christianity is not opposed to enjoying life. Biblical Christianity is not opposed to the beauty of the world. And by the way, we have to be careful about this, even in our preaching. I can be guilty of this myself when I say, you know, we've got to be careful about the world, but I don't always take time to describe and define what that means. Not everything in the world is evil and bad and horrible and unacceptable. Okay, there's, there's good food in the world, there's great places to travel, there's, there's beauty, there's... Uh, all kinds of experiences we can have with the five senses. I mean, there, there's, there's lots of great things about life on planet Earth. The problem is, is if we take those things and make them our idols or more important than God, that's when we get ourselves into trouble. Or when those things are twisted or perverted or misused or abused, that's when we get ourselves into trouble. So we sort of understand the good and the bad in the physical world. But according to Buddha, suffering ultimately is or flows from any desire to enjoy that which is impermanent. So that's the second noble truth. The third noble truth is one is liberated or set free from suffering when one ceases to have desires, and that's tied to no longer craving impermanence. And the fourth noble truth is that desire can be eliminated by following the eightfold path. So now there's a little mechanism, a convenient little mechanism within Buddhism to help you to overcome desire. Interestingly, and I would point this out maybe in an apologetic argument, you have to desire to no longer desire in order to attain nirvana. So you have to have some motivation or desire to no longer desire, and that in and of itself is a desire. Otherwise, how can you rid your life of desire if you have no desire to do it? So, we now have then the four seals. So here's the four seals. Number one, all is impermanent. Doesn't last. There is no true self. What does that sound like? Hinduism. That's where there's a, an overlap. 
existence is marked by suffering, but nirvana is the release. So slightly different than Hinduism in that Hindus view suffering as the mechanism that is necessary to be reincarnated and ultimately enter back into Brahma. Buddha takes a different angle and he says that we suffer when we follow that which is, is impermanent and when we follow that which is uh, impermanent, we will not break free from suffering. But he does want to see people break free from suffering. He doesn't believe that suffering has a redemptive value attached to it. And so he's trying to create a system to help people to get out of it. But it's kind of a philosophical system, right? You sort of got to think your way out of it in a sense. So here's the eightfold path. You need to follow wisdom. <coughs> so this, this is foundational, called pana, right understanding. So what do you got to understand? Well, you got to understand that everything's impermanent. Secondly, you got to understand that all is an illusion. And third, you need to understand that I do not exist in the truest sense of the word. And then right thought then would be to, to renounce all of your attachments. So I'm no longer going to be attached to wife, kids, money, buildings, wealth, even myself, because then I'm attaching myself to impermanence and I'm putting myself in a position for further suffering. Then there's ethics or sila. You cannot take life in any form. You cannot steal. You cannot be guilty of uh, immorality of any form. If you're a monk, you're not allowed to lie and you're not allowed to drink or ingest anything that would potentially intoxicate your body, like alcohol, obviously. So then we would practice right speech, so you speak well of other people, which is, you know, nice. Right actions, you need to obey Buddhist commands and you need to... Um, you need to engage in a, a right or proper ethical form of livelihood. So make, an, make a living through an appropriate occupation. So you can't be like a cat burglar or prostitute or whatever. So there's an ethical dimension, and then there's a mental discipline. Samadhi, right effort, prevention of evil thoughts, right awareness, conscious of the events of life, and right meditation, which leads to enlightenment. Now these, he says, are not so much steps. It's not like you take one, then you take another, then you take another, but they're attitudes and actions that are done as part of the Buddhist life. Now this is very attractive to people in the West that are not interested in an exclusive God, that are not interested in dogma and doctrine and rights and wrongs. This is very attractive. Uh, Susie and I used to... Um, well, we had, we had some couple houses back. We had a, a couple that lived next door. They weren't married. And uh, he would often talk to me about Christianity. And uh, he, he wasn't a moral man. He was actually a male stripper. And so him and I would have all these conversations about uh, Christianity. And I remember uh, him and Jen were in our living room one night. And we're chit-chatting. And it was one of those opportunities clear and succinct and unambiguous way I had all the time I had the listening ears 
perfect opportunity to share the gospel. So I just unloaded. And it was back and forth, and like it all came together great. I mean, I'm thinking, this guy is absolutely going to be converted tonight. <clears throat> he was asking the right questions. Uh, he wasn't opposing what I said. There was like good camaraderie, good dialogue. You know, it was great. And he was like uh, repeating back to me what I had said to him. Like clearly he was understanding. Okay, so what you're saying is back and forth, back and forth. And at the end of all of this, he's like, that's really cool. But you know, I'm, I think I'm going to try out Buddhism. <laughs> it's kind of like the best of everything. And I'm just, oh, this is like a total Romans 1 incident, right? And they suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. And I thought about that for a long time, that from a marketing perspective, Buddhism is, is very attractive to people. It's soft on the lines it draws. It, you know, it has a chubby little cute dude you can put in your garden. Uh, it kind of tries to answer life's big questions without getting bogged down in the details. It's peaceful, it's loving, it's every man for himself kind of thing. It's not as sort of hard and callous as Hinduism can be perceived as being towards other people. And therefore, it's, I'm not sure that there's millions and millions of converts among Westerners, but there's a lot of respect and appreciation for it, right? It kind of fits the Canadian ethos of toleration and multiculturalism and that kind of thing. Yeah, but you're not going to get in that much trouble for it. Um, yeah, there would be there would be written writings, but not not like dogmatic, considered dogmatic, didactic sort of "thou shalt nots" like you find in Judaism, Christianity, Islam. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Like today or back in the day? I have no idea. I never thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. And uh, what are the goals then of, of the Buddhist? Well, there's a number of goals. Your immediate goal, so you, th you, th you can think of like now and not yet, right? Immediate, ultimate, here and now, eschatological. The here and now is eliminate the cause of suffering. What, how do we do that? Not by giving money to the poor. Not by fundamentally speaking out against injustice or moralizing people, but we, we eliminate the cause of suffering by detaching ourselves from anything that is part of the all, realizing that it doesn't really exist and denying ourselves of our desires. In a sense, it's kind of like you just zone out. You would detach yourself from them. You can be married and be a Buddhist, but that would be a lower form of enlightenment than if you're like a monk. It's not that you would hate your family, but you would ultimately withdraw from any desires associated with the relationship that you would have with people. Because if you have that attachment to anything in this life, you, in, in fact, this is kind of true. When you attach yourself to someone else, you automatically put yourself in a position of vulnerability and then potential pain. We've talked about that in our life group. 
where when you're in a relationship with someone, even a great relationship, you're setting yourself up for the potential of pain. C.S. Lewis said this, right? C.S. Lewis was scared to death to get married, if you've ever watched the movie Shadowlands. He was uh, getting older. He, he, he went around and preached and taught and lectured on suffering, wrote books on everyone, thought he was a genius, but the guy could not have a relationship with a woman because he was scared to death. And he didn't know why until this nosy American woman sort of muscles her way into his life. He ends up falling in love with her and marries her. And when she dies a short time later, he, he blames God at first, but then he comes through this trans transformational process and he realizes that part of love in the now is to permit oneself to be in the place of potential for pain. Because at some point, one person or the other is going to let the other down or lose the other person. So when she dies, he basically says, uh, the pain now is part of the love then. That's the deal. right? And, and that's very true, in fact. That in a relationship, you expose yourself to another person, you open up, you become vulnerable. But by becoming vulnerable, you open yourself up to the possibility of pain. Either the loss of the person or the person letting you down or whatnot. So in Buddhism, what you would do then is you would ultimately want to move away from the desire to have those relationships and that brings you back into uh, a place of enlightenment and positions you for entry into nirvana. See? So, What's the ultimate goal? Liberation from the cycles of life and death. But I guess at least one individual, the Dalai Lama, according to Buddhism, has graciously chosen to come back over and over again Having received enlightenment, now he chooses to offer uh, enlightened teaching to other people. And this man, who fundamentally is a religious teacher, has, gets a lot of this from political leaders all around the world. Gets a lot of attention for it. A couple hundred years ago, he probably would have been considered um, almost insane. Or at least someone you would have, like, who is this person? Like, are you kidding me? But now he gets to visit with world leaders and presumably influence him, influence them, right? It's interesting, by the way, that we associate influence with correctness. If you have influence, you must be correct. You must have something to say that's of meaning and value to the world, I suppose. Hindu? If you leave that religion, is it, are you cast out of families or psychological? I would say, because Hinduism is so tied to a culture, to a family background, to generations of people in a particular caste, you actually have the potential of being killed in some of the strictest forms, some of the stricter families. Everything from being killed to being shunned to maybe having liberal parents that don't care. So there probably would be the whole, whole gamut of responses, but there's the potential for that. I'm not sure how that would work in Buddhism. I think there would probably be some disappointment at the very least because you're walking away from the opportunity for enlightenment. Right. So reincarnation, a little different here. 
Buddhism differs from Hinduism in that he taught that there is rebirth, but no reincarnation. What's the difference? Well, the doctrine of reincarnation teaches that life, life is reincarnated in various forms. Buddha taught that the individual essence ceases to exist upon death. Instead, he believed that there are five aggregates of an individual's essence. So those are composed of your body, your emotions and sensations, your perception. We could say maybe your consciousness or self-awareness. Your volition or mental choices and your consciousness. These are dismantled. So you think of, think of like a, uh, a large tub and five people die. And each of their five parts are thrown into this tub. So now there's 25 parts. And then those are reassembled. So it could be apart from this person, apart from that person, apart from this person. And they're reassembled into new individual essences. So out of the tub come five new, but the parts are taken from many others. What was that? What's that? Used parts, yes. Yeah. Kind of like going to the junkyard, right? So that's a little bit of a different understanding, except when one experiences enlightenment like the Dalai Lama, then those five come back as in a new body or form. So I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest with you, why he chose that understanding over reincarnation. I don't know what the motivation for that was, but he does take a slightly different view than Hinduism. Scriptures... So they affirm a closed canon, meaning uh, canon is the word for, like, rule. So we have a canon of scripture, a, 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 a precise rule, set of rules that we live by. There's 66 books in our Bible. They have a closed canon known as the Pali Tripitaka, and it's about 70 times longer than the Bible. It's composed of Buddha's sermons rules for monks, and various philosophical teachings. Now, there is a group of Buddhists, the Mahayana Buddhists, that affirm an open canon drawn from many sources. And then that third, the small group I mentioned, have a couple of other books. They affirm the Kanjur and the Tanjur as scripture as well. Yes, Dela. Yeah. Yeah, so someone else is recognized as the new Dalai Lama when he dies. Mm, I heard this once, but I don't actually remember how that process works. The monks have something to do with it. Wow. For generations, so, yeah. You know, like things like being in the temple, the monks would pour water and, and all monks bathed 
but how? You know, and they just don't know. And it's, but um, with this, they cut it down to six hundred thousand dollars. They they wrote a two hundred pages one drive that they were all this diligence and this design to take the Lakers to the Super Bowl. Okay. Okay, yeah. Like, yeah, it has yeah. to be someone, you know, and then they find, they, you know, they'll go to where all the children have been born, and they go to the month or so after the last few drives, and they put out, and they look for the signs that maybe the ball will run out of place, or be rung, or they're looking for the been rattling and stuff like this, and then, you know, they'll, they'll pick the ones that they think might be one of the, the Dalai Lamas, and then they'll put out things saying they're Dalai Lama, and saying they're not from the Dalai Lama, and they, you know, Oh, okay. So Interesting. Okay. The parents would probably be delighted if their child was the one that was chosen and taken. Okay. Okay, good. Thank you. Did you hear you guys heard that at the back? Yeah. <laughs> The spinning wheels, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So would a number of years go by so that he'd be old enough to pick? Like you said, they'd run up to him, or like, is there a time period between that's acceptable? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Transportation, right? <laughs> Very interesting. Okay. Well, thank you for that. So uh, being that our time's up, I think we'll actually end there. And uh, we'll, we'll pick up on, we'll just finish up. We've just got a very little bit left for Buddhism uh, next week. And then we'll get into uh, evidentialism, okay? So enjoy your week.